the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business. This week we're focusing on the business of sport. And I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Michael O'Keefe of Teneo. Michael, you're very welcome. Kieran, it's great to be back. And welcome back. Uh, later in the show, we'll be joined in studio by Sarah Keane, Chief Executive of Swim Ireland and President of the Olympic Federation of Ireland. She'll be talking to us about the Tokyo Summer Olympic Games, which will be on next year. She'll be also uh, talking about governance in sport and the fallout from the Rio Games uh, three years ago and the whole issues around Pat Hickey. But first, we're going to start with our usual wrap. And uh, Mick, we're going to begin with the Irish Open in golf, which uh, tees off uh, from Lahinch next week. Yeah, no, it's 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 huge news for for West Clare and 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 the big week in in Irish golf. Obviously, we have uh, Port Rush coming up in a couple of weeks' time, which which we spoke about previously. Um, which that's is the British be, Open, yeah, which that's is going to dwarf obviously the Irish Open, an, an, enormous, exactly. But um, the Irish Open is, has really kind of found its feet. Um, you know, ironically, Rory McIlroy was one of the power brokers in terms of getting the Irish Open rehabilitated. Unfortunately, he's not going to be there, which was obviously a big disappointment at the mm. time. But in fairness to the tournament organisers and the golf golf club and McGinley, who's the main driver. There was actually a really strong field. Um, the likes of John Ram, Tommy Fleetwood, Louis Eustazen, Matt Wallace, Ian Poulter, uh, with a sprinkling of kind of the McDowell's, Shane Larry's of this world as well. So it should be a fantastic few days. The sun shines, obviously, you make it even better. Um, and one of the one of the strongest European Tour um, events this this season. Right. So how many fans are they expecting? And what does it mean for? A place like Lahinch, a small a small town in Clare, as you mentioned earlier, but obviously in the summer very busy with tourists and surfers and and so forth. Yeah, it's it's a busy town. It's a it's a it's a big tourism town. Um, surfing and golf, obviously, what it's famous for, and a couple of pints and music too. Um, so eighty thousand fans expected over 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 the course of the the, the four days. Um, obviously, like most links courses, it's there's one way in and one way out. So there's a whole logistical operation there in terms of traffic flow. Um, they've had to build a grandstand over the Liscana Road there. Um, and I think, you know, big boost to the local economy like these things do. The Hinge is busy anyway, but, you know, 25,000 new beds, um, bed nights um, expected. Um, and the figure that's been been mentioned around um, the kind of boost to the local economy in the region of kind of 12 to 15 million, which is great. Um, golf fans tend to stay a couple of days. They tend to obviously rent uh, accommodation or, or stay in hotels. So it's yeah. a, re- a really big boost for the local area. Now, presumably some of those bed nights will be in nearby Doombeg, which is owned by Donald Trump. Yeah, so West Clare has been in the news, all right. And, um, you know, as you as you probably know, um, a lot of American tourists come in, play Lahinch, play Doombeg. Um, Donald Trump's um, Doombeg um, uh, course has obviously been showcased throughout the world with his helicopter landing in with Melania there a couple of weeks ago, which has had a huge impact too on, on, on that part of the world. So, um yeah. Look, it's going to be it's going to be fantastic. I I think this has been streamed um, or shown all over the world. You know, huge TV audiences, um, NBC, Golf Channel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it, it will only further establish Ireland as a golf destination, and only further establish the West of Ireland as, as a place to come and visit. Obviously, yeah. Donald is very well. Now you've got connections there. down there, as they say. Um, will you? Will you be? I presume you'll be there. I will be there. I am. So I, who's your tip? Um, my tip is um, I think Shane Lowry is going to give it a right good go. Um, Graham McDowell has, has come in to uh, into form my, my father-in-law Padraig Slattery reckons that uh, Matt Wallace is the man to watch so there's three tips okay. <laughs> Edge, I think I'm bets. right in saying Padraig's former captain of the club he is yeah he's so former, he knows the course quite well former captain so he, yeah, he, he knows the course okay. very well 
All right, very good. Uh, now I won't be to... playing in the Pro-Am, unfortunately, on Wednesday because I'm, I'm busy with other duties. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to venture capital in sport. And in recent years, a number of well-backed funds have started to invest substantially in this area of sport, uh, notably, I guess, in uh, Manchester City um, and the uh, satellite clubs that um, they've managed to put around Man City around the globe in New York and, and elsewhere. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so look, you know, um, private equity or, 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 or VC money coming into sport is, isn't anything particularly new, but what we are seeing is a lot more activity. Um, and I, there's obviously, you know, perceived value in sport. Some of the big players and some of the big sports management companies and investment funds like a CVC Capital, um, IMG, there's another crowd called Sapphire Sports, and there's a number of others. I guess Fenway fall into this category. They Fenway would, yes. Sports, and they own the Boston Red Sox So there's, the US. There's, there's what they call sports management companies, which are essentially agencies which run sports events or sometimes runs franchises and what we're seeing is these people buying clubs but also buying leagues which has become a new thing or buying tournaments. Well, what about Dundalk's owners? They have American owners. Yeah, Dundalk is, 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 is a fund as well. So like there's there's a, a lot of this kind of money coming in at small level and also very big level as too as you can imagine and, and you know you have private owners as well who you could argue are kind of wealth management funds themselves as well some of the times. Um, but you know we've seen CBC invest in, in, in English rugby um, they also bought a controlling stake in Formula One, and 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 um, you know some of their 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 stake was sold for for three billion profit, which was reported. So you know rugby seems to be a new go to area. Um, we've seen a kind of a tussle there in world rugby over the last six months. You may have followed it, where it was a big Chinese backed, um, Swiss based um, investment fund came in looking to invest in in, in world rugby. Um, that hasn't that has fallen through, but there are other interests like the likes of Six Nations and yeah. Sanzar and these tournaments. So there's a big interest. Now, the CVC have bid for uh, to take a chunk of the Six Nations championship here, which is very close to the hearts of uh, those in in the rugby fraternity yeah. in Northern uh, Europe. And also a 30% stake in the Pro 14 property, the, the league uh, structure, if you like. So, I mean, this really divides opinion as to whether this is a good thing or not. So yeah, where do you stand on it? It's a really good point. And, and I, I, I think time will tell whether this is a good thing for sport or not. I, I think the the initial um, kind of feedback is is people look at venture capital or they look at private equity and they say, oh, people come in invest and strip you know uh, strip these assets over time the other way to look at it is that these strategic investment funds come in and they actually their purpose in life is to build value in their property um so they come in to take a minority or a majority stake and their purpose in life is to build value in what they've well, bought because profits so it's they a can build profit, it on so, profit. yeah so so you would like to think that private equity money coming into something like rugby would be good for rugby because they would look at things like bundling media rights they would look at sure investment. but that generally means the punter the, the supporter paying more in whichever way shape or form it is whether it's via broadcast deal it's a subscription to sky or bt or air sport or whoever or it's uh higher prices at the gate at the turnstile or, you know, higher prices for merchandise, whatever it might be. Not necessarily. And, look, and I think it depends on, on the strategic investor as well. Like, I don't think we can be kind of unanimous about our opinion on this. I, I think there's there's mixed view on that. If you look at the rugby investment, the view would be that the unions will get more money to invest, that they could provide more value for fans. Mick, 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 come on. Since 1992, Sky Sports subscription, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm open to correction on this, but it has never gone down. 
Never gone. The cost of a Sky Sports subscription has never gone on. It's only gone one way. And the price of tickets for Premier League matches in England has only gone one way. Now, that's been great for the clubs. It's been great for the players. It certainly has been great for the players. And it's been wonderful for agents. But it really has not been good for supporters. They're having to shell out a lot more money now than they previously did. And that is surely going to be the case uh, if these guys come into rugby. Well, the flip, the flip of that is that in the last few years, with the likes of, of, of some of the social media companies taking some of, the control, some of the media rights that have actually made it free, there's over-the-top media as well where they're providing, there's never been more free sport on air than ever, than ever before. That's a fact. Things like tennis and some minority sports are providing free sport now through through broadcast through to the stream. internet to yeah. streaming yeah doing exactly. the likes of Sky and, that's, and that's BT one, and that's do one whatever. end of the market they you're talking very it. globally about they this they don't want to pay for it that's why it's free they <laughs> don't want to pay for it well what that has done is that it's provided more eyeballs for those sports which in turn has provided more commercial investment for those sports and has helped those sports grow yeah yeah Right, okay. Talking, talking about tickets and ticket prices and so forth, let's move to the Women's uh, Soccer World Cup. It's, uh, it's been underway now for a few weeks in France. Um, certainly garnering a lot of eyeballs, uh, that's for sure. It's, it's brought um, the Women's World Cup to, into more homes, I think, than ever before. And the standard of football has been very good. But there has been some controversy around this. I know the opening game sold out, but I think only one other game sold out. Only 14 of the 52 matches have actually sold out. And there's been a lot of controversy over ticketing arrangements. Yeah, look, I, I, I think the, the, the first and foremost, I think, um, I don't think there's been a, a female sports tournament that has been so high profile. Um, and it seems to be reaching such a, a huge audience. The stadia do look relatively full. There has been some mixed PR, I think is probably the right way to say it, where, you know, there seems to be um, less match day tickets sold and a lot more free tickets being given out. Um, the only thing to counter that is that North America and Canada and the US it's far more sophisticated down the line women's soccer than say it is in some European countries. Um, I I would think on balance, I think um, I think this is doing a huge amount for for women's sport. I think there's been some concern, and you go back to maybe the 1970s with the World Cup and some of the African teams getting you know big beatings in in the World Cup back then. There are some of the weaker nations coming out of Asia in particular who are shipping heavy enough defeats, and I think that's just a symptom of the fact that this tournament needs to mature. Um, but I think looking at some of the the, the the bigger picture stuff, you know, all the the big main partners, the Adidas, Coca Cola, all those kind of people seem to, are, are behind it. They are getting big big audiences, big attendances. I think there's a figure of a, a billion people are going to watch this. So. I think this is a bit of a watershed for, for women's sport. I think it's overall quite positive um, in saying that it hasn't been without its issues and, and some ticketing issues and so forth as well where people seem to be separated from others that they, they bought tickets with. Um, and in some cases, you know, maybe not all the seats been full. But I think we have to factor it in that this is actually on the whole a, a very positive um Experience, yeah. Now there have been some issues, haven't there? Um, the, the U.S. women seem to have taken a legal case against U.S. soccer, and the the woman whose name escapes me, she's a Norwegian footballer, and I'm going to mispronounce it if I try to. Um, her, uh, she won the female version of the Ballon d'Or. Yeah, essentially the the best woman's player um, last season, and she's not representing Norway. She's chosen not to represent Norway. Yeah, and I think look, there's there's a kind of a, a train has left the station here a little bit on on pay equality and pay inequality and so on. And I think look, the the obvious argument is here is that uh, until such a time as yeah. you know we have the same attendances and same commercial revenue coming into female sports, it, it could be hard to justify equal pay. Um, in saying that, um, there's a strong case been taken by the US team in particular around pay inequality. Um, they are the most successful women's soccer team of all time um, and you know if you walk into a Nike shop in 
New York, it's you know women's soccer everywhere. It's it's a huge sport in the states, and men's soccer isn't as as popular as we know. Um, so it'll be interesting to 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 find out where that goes. I think their strong case is that they actually generate as much income as the men, but actually aren't paid as well as the men. So I think they have a very strong case. I think in other markets, I think women's soccer is going to have to catch up. I think anyway, my you know, from my own personal perspective, you watch it, you see far more coverage of women's soccer now. And I think it's something that hopefully in this market, um, there's investment in, in women's soccer as well, because I think without a vibrant women's um, code, um, I think I think um, these I think sports like the FAI will, will be left behind. All right. Well, we'll see how it develops as time moves on. Uh, Mick, thanks for that. Uh, we're going to take a short break now. We're in return. We'll be joined in the studio by Sarah Keane, the president of the Olympic Federation of Ireland. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can download this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, the Tokyo Summer Olympics will be on next year, just over a year away, and Irish athletes have their eyes fixed firmly on achieving qualification standards and booking their places on the plane to Japan. And the Olympic Federation of Ireland has also been busy, along with some of the national governing bodies, in signing up some sponsorship deals in advance of that. And I'm delighted to say we're joined in studio by Sarah Keane, who wears uh, two hats, as it were, one as Chief Executive of Swim Ireland and the other as President of the Olympic Federation of Ireland. Uh, Sarah, you're very welcome to Inside Business. We'll come to the Olympic Federation role uh, in a few minutes, but uh, let's talk about the day-to-day job at Swim Ireland. How did that come about for you? Because you're a lawyer by profession. Uh, So how did the Swim Ireland role come around? Well, it's quite a long time ago now. I was... um I was at a national swimming championships at a weekend up north. It used to rotate around the provinces before we had the, you know, the facilities we now have in Dublin. And um, I met up with my old coach and some of the swimmers. And one of the um, young swimmers, a guy called Stephen Manley, had uh, just broken 50 seconds for the 100 metres freestyle, which was like the four minute mile or something. It was a huge milestone in our swimming. And he thought he was eligible for funding with Sport Ireland or the Irish Sports Council, as it was at the time. And they, the coach turned to me and said, look, will you help? You know, you're a lawyer, you know how to write things. Can you help us apply for funding? He's our first athlete who's been in that situation. So I met um, his mother and we went into uh, the old sport, sport uh, HQ at the time. And um, we were sort of handed some documents and uh, told to fill them in. And that would be the way mm. about going about get the funding. So I suppose for me, uh, it was a real sign that there there wasn't really an awful lot of a structure there for certainly the swimming um, athletes that we had. And uh, so I continued to support the athlete. He got his funding and I stayed a little bit in touch with his mother. And she was the one a couple of months later who contacted me and said to me that there was a, an advert in, in the Irish Times for um, the chief executive officer role of Swim Ireland for the first, it was the first um, CEO role in the organisation and KPMG were running a recruitment process. So she said, I'd like you to apply. I think you should apply. Um, so I said, yeah, good luck. Thank you very much. But, you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, uh, I was in Matheson Ormsby Prentice, MOP, now known as Matheson at the time and, you know, enjoying my time there. Um, and I honestly can't say, but about three weeks later, I picked up the phone to KPMG. I can't tell you why. It might have been the fact that I'd done three all-nighters in the space of a couple of months <laughs> and I was probably re-evaluating my life because I was working in the area of commercial law. And uh, I was so naive at the time, I didn't even realise I was being interviewed over the phone when I spoke to John McCullough and KPMG. And at the end of my 20-minute phone call, 
he said, look, the closing date for applications is Friday. This was a Wednesday, he said. So, you know, if you're interested, you really do need to put your CV in. And I think probably because I didn't have a lot of time to think about it, I submitted the application. And uh, and I had I ended up in a process with um, you know, three stages to it. And I suppose what really interested me then, by the time I got to the third stage, I was starting to really understand the other side of the other side of sport, um, you know, preparing for it and listening and, uh, to them. But I was also handed a Swim Ireland strategic plan, which um, I didn't know much about strategy at the time. And I was asked to pick three areas of the plan and talk about how I would, you know, you know, uh, implement them if I had if I was successful in, in my role to become chief executive. And that's just changed my whole outlook on sport. I just thought, saw it as something much bigger than, um, you know, I suppose the voluntary side I, I, and the stuff we're doing all the time. I realised there's actually, you know, there's a vision that's needed. There's a way you go about doing things. There's an opportunity to, to, to I suppose, plan for the future and make something happen within sport. Um, and obviously the fact that it was the first chief executive role, our sport was starting to professionalise at the time. So I really got engaged with the recruitment process. I got offered the job. I uh, then had a bit of a rocky road to start in the job. I ended up in a court case with my own organisation. But um, I've, yeah, I've I've shed lots of tears during my time, but I've absolutely loved sure. every minute of it. And swimming in Ireland, I mean, but it's not, you weren't a, a competitive swimmer yourself, a competition swimmer uh, you were. I was, yeah. Okay. I, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I was on the Irish team and I was a national champion, but I wouldn't call myself a high performance athlete. I wouldn't have been someone who would have okay. been likely to be at the games. Okay. And swimming has had its own issues, uh, hasn't it, with um, child abuse um, scandals uh, going back. So Swim Ireland and, 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 and your time with the organisation over the last uh, over the last while has, has been about putting a completely new structure in place and ensuring that uh, something like that doesn't happen again. Yes, when I came into the organisation, it had its funding suspended. Um, there was me and one and a half other staff members. Um, and we had 14 cases of child sexual abuse against the organisation, civil cases. And... Um, there was just, yeah, there was a lot going on at the time. Um, and the 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 fees from my legal case with the organisation also were on my desk um, when I started with the organisation to be paid because obviously they couldn't be paid from taxpayers' money. So it was quite a quite a challenging time, but it was still an organisation with great people, great athletes, great coaches, great yeah, volunteers, sure. despite all of that. Sure. But how did you handle it? What was your plan to handle all of that? How did you navigate your way through it? Well, first of all, I, I was always part of a team. And, and that's always the way I've operated. It's never about one person. Um, there's a lot of really great people who, who work in our sport, who support our sport, who are around our sport. Um, one of the first things that had happened before I came in was the board size had been changed. So the board size of the organisation before I came in had been 24. And by the time I came in, it was redu- had been reduced to 11. Um, and the organisation itself had, had, had passed that through. That was fundamental to how we move things forward. Um, without a doubt. Now, at that time, we wouldn't have had independent directors. We wouldn't have had skill set directors. And this is, you know, you're talking about 2004, 2005 at this point. So it would have been a different landscape for Irish sport as well. But that was absolutely crucial. Um, and then, I mean, we did have, you know, it was a tough first year because the, the honorary secretary, for example, role would have been used to doing the role of the chief executive would have done, used to running the office, used to doing all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, there was a whole transition of how you work together and what, whose role is what, who's who makes what decisions, what's operational versus what's strategic. You know, you're with a board of people who are used to running the sport and and don't uh, necessarily, didn't necessarily understand the strategy side of it because when I spoke to the board of Swim Ireland about the strategic plan that I'd seen for the organisation as part of the recruitment process, not one of them has ever seen it. So, you know, you, you are dealing with a board who, um, a lot of really good people, but not necessarily... Um, inducted in relation to what being a board is and at that time very few of the board members had ever been board members before 
but we're willing to move the organisation forward. We're willing to be brave and make good decisions. Um, we we did board training from the start, which I, I at Swim Ireland and now both at the Olympic Federation, we do board training every year. It doesn't matter how experienced you are as a director. It doesn't matter if you come mm. from business. It doesn't matter where you come from. Sport is complex. It's very complex in how it operates. So we do board training every year. We talk about the fact that when you sit on the board, you don't wear the region hat or the club hat or the discipline hat. You wear the national organisation hat. And you have to learn how to deal with the issues you want faced at club and regional level, where you raise them and how you manage that without compromising your hat as the board director. <clears throat> so the board training for me was key. The board size was key. The strategy, what's the organisation about? What's your vision for organisation? What are we trying to do? And also a big part of was trying to find the roles for the volunteers that is where their skill set is, not necessarily where they think the power base yeah. is. And if I could say, if I could say, I mean, this sounds like the FEI uh, in 2019. You know, you, you dealt with these issues uh, 15 years ago and here we are with the FEI um, dealing with what sounds like all of the same issues that you guys uh, dealt with. And I, I know John Tracy has uh, mentioned you as somebody he'd like to see put into the FEI, uh, possibly to help them sort out their corporate governance uh, issues that have emerged in, in the past few months. But when you're looking at it from the outside, what, what do you make of this whole uh, FEI uh, controversy? Well, first of all, I think John's comment was just in relation to the fact that the Olympic Federation or the Olympic Council had been through quite a change process in the last couple of years and that we might have something to offer or contribute in terms of our learnings. Um you know, look, I'm outside of it, so it's you know, it always be very low to comment about what's happening within an organisation. It's um, it's a massive organisation. It's an organisation that's very important for our sport, um, and you've got an awful lot of people who have given up an awful, an awful lot of their lives to it. And you know, this is the challenge you have in in sport because you want people to be passionate about it, but I we describe it as a fire. If the if people are over passionate and it almost becomes you know they they feel it's their ownership or their entitlement, then the fire's out of control. But at the same time, if people become too apathetic and, you know, don't feel that they're involved or that they have a say, well, then then it, then that fire goes away and and then you're really challenged. So it's about how do you manage to keep the fire at a level where people are passionate and able to be part of an organisation. But at the same time, it's not that they're too involved or not that they're not involved enough. And I think that's the challenge that the FAI has faced. And it it's going to take time to, to, in my view, to make relevant changes as well, because governance is not a tick the box exercise. Governance is a culture. It's absolutely a culture. It's always evolving. I mean, when I when I when I when we were looking at the just even when the governance subcommittee was set up, as I said, I'm not that close to it. But one of the things I looked at, it went, okay, we have a Swim Ireland governance subcommittee that we're you know we're, we're we're recomposing at the moment, but we don't we were hadn't been thinking about having an independent person on it. We should have an independent person around it. That's what people are talking about at the moment. So you almost need to always keep abreast of what's happening within the area of governance. And uh, but ultimately, governance, from my perspective, is about decision making. Decision making happening at the right levels of the organisation, um, with with transparency and with integrity. And uh, and it's it's. You know, I think people are often worried about the fact that when you have a committee structure, and again, I don't know the details of the, the FAI, but in a lot of voluntary organisations, you come from a committee onto the board. And if you fall off the board, it's almost as if you have you have nothing. Um, what we've done in Swim Ireland is that if you sit on um, the board, you cannot sit on any committee of the organisation. Um, but if you come off the board after your term limit, then you can go back and sit on a committee. And often what we find then is people have, you know, they bring from the board back in their experiences to the committee. So they might be much more aware of the strategic plan from having been on the board. So then when they go into the committee or back into the region or back somewhere else within the organisation, they have something different to offer. And often it's at a higher level maybe than when they came in. So, you know, you want people to feel that they don't have to be in one place 
to to be making you know to to be part of something. Um, and also, a lot of times you find in voluntary organisations, people misunderstand where the decision making is. People think all the decisions are made at the board level. Really, most of the operational decisions, certainly with a big organisation like the FAI, in terms of how the sport operates, in terms of the day to day stuff, shouldn't be taking place at the board level. Should be much more strategic at board level. So a lot of the, you know, so being on the board really shouldn't be for a lot of members who are grassroots in terms of having an influence on how on what they're interested in. They shouldn't need to be on the board to have to have that opportunity to influence. And I think that's often an education piece, people understanding that, people understanding what levels of decision-making are made throughout an organisation. So that would be my experience from generally being involved in sport. And often you find if you explain that to people and explain where they fit in or explain where they can influence or explain where they can be involved or, you know, where they can have an outlet for their passion, people often will buy in then because they understand where they come into it. But that takes time and, and, and understanding and not really looking to the future um, as opposed to maybe looking to, I mean, every organisation has its good and its bad. And, and there, are, I mean, I make mistakes on a regular basis with what I do and, and we'll continue to do so. We'll do it in the OFI, I'll do it in Swim Ireland. But I think as long as people are open about that, take their learnings. And, and that's a big piece for us in both Swim Ireland and, and the Olympic Federation is that we can never forget what went before us, sure. um, particularly for us in Swim Ireland with some of those learnings. <clears throat> Okay. Um, before going on talk about the Olympics, just one of the other hats that you wear is around um, women in sport and the steering group there. And it would be interesting to get your perspective in terms of what is the, I suppose, objectives of that particular group. But also, where do you think women in sport is at the moment in this country in terms of profile, in terms of women involved in high levels of sports administration, um, also kind of commercial investment in, in female sports vis-a-vis perhaps maybe 10, 15 years ago? I think uh, it's in a very good place. Um, I think a, a huge amount of progress has been made. Now, some of that comes with societal change as well and a recognition generally that um, women um, should have the opportunity to participate in whatever area of life they, they'd like to do so. Um, from my own perspective, personally, I'm a great believer in women being at the table for decisions the highest level, at the highest levels of the organisation because I think that can make a difference then the whole way down. And I don't think we have enough of that at this point. I'm also the uh, chair of the European um, Olympic Committee Gender Equality Commission and I'm on the world governing bodies um, equality commissions as well. And I think there's a few things around that. First of all, when you talk about women in sport, often you do get you do get um, men feeling maybe a bit disenfranchised. Um, and I think that's a, that can be a challenge. So um, I'm a great believer in calling something equality and gender equality and, and looking at issues that are that face men as well. Because what I find in, in sport is often it's also a lot of older men who are involved and maybe there's not the same opportunity for younger men to be get involved in leadership positions. Um, so, and they face some of the same challenges as women do about getting involved. And often term limits makes a, bif- a big difference to that. If people are willing to step off, then a so lot of people are allowed to set on. Diversity piece rather than women, male, female, do you think? I, I think that if, if um, I think it is a big diversity piece for me personally, um, but I also think we need to look at the different areas around it because there are different challenges facing it. So, um, you know, the, 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 the piece around the decision making is women have to be in, willing to put themselves forward for election. They have to be willing to put themselves forward for positions. Um, and, you know, I found my own experience um, and anecdotal experience is that women have to be more cajoled or encouraged to do that than men. Um, and therefore, they generally need more training. And we find that if women have been through training, they're more likely to put themselves forward. And then they put themselves forward in the same way as men do. And, and if they're successful, they're successful. And if they're not, they're not. And certainly Irish sport has a lot more female CEOs now than it used to be. I remember a couple of years ago when I was at a meeting in the Department of Sport um, and there was 20-something CEOs in the room and I was the only female CEO in the room. That's different now. You you, you probably would have maybe, I don't know if it's be as high as 20%, but you would have a lot more female CEOs in the room than you would have before. I'm not convinced you'd have the same amount of females in um, decision-making, like chair positions. You're likely to have the the women in the secretary position or in another position rather than the chair position. 
Um, then in, in, in uh, participation, in a lot of sports, we're doing a lot better. Um, but in uh, terms of officiating, in terms of coaching, um, in term, you know, we're not doing so well. So again, you know, whether women are not willing to put themselves forward, whether they're not getting the opportunity, it's a mixture of things. And will, uh, will this group you're involved in make a difference, do you think? I think it's the first time in a long time there's been a full strategy um, and a policy around women's sport. So without a doubt, in my view, it'll make a difference. And there's four cl- clear pillars to that. There's a great steering group from from every you know area between media, between um, coaching, between administration. You have a lot of people with a lot of different skill sets around, uh, around it. And Nora Stapleton is obviously coming as the women's yeah. sport officer in Sport Ireland, and Lynn Cantwell is is chairing the group. So yes, I think it I, th- I think it has a will have a good focus going forward. I think to be fair, there my experience of the media has always been positive in terms of women, but we just have to get the the information out there, and we and we we have to get people willing to speak, and we. Um, you know, the challenge we probably have is the fact that a lot of the coverage is around certain sports rather than it's around male versus yeah. female. So in swimming, for example, we've never felt any difference in terms of whether our male athletes are covered or our female athletes. It's maybe us yes, trying to do a better yeah, job yeah. at getting swimming covered. Sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, let's talk about the Olympics because the Tokyo Summer Games are, are coming up next year um, and they always, uh, the Olympics always get a lot of coverage, obviously. How many athletes um, do you think, uh, on a, you know, with a fair wind at our back, we might... We might end up sending to Tokyo, and how much will it actually cost? I presume you've done the sums on this. How much will it actually cost to send an Irish team and all the entourage um, to Tokyo for the games? Well, first of all, in two thousand and eight, there were sixty six athletes who went. In two thousand and twelve, there were seventy seven, and in two thousand and sixteen, there was eighty eight, or the other way around. So we should really be at either the eighty eight. I think it was actually eighty eight that we think we might be at, mm. based on the way it was going. It all depends on whether we qualify rugby teams or hockey teams. That'll make all the difference to it. And at this stage, both the men, women and men's have have you know done their job in the, in the last two weeks to yeah. go exactly. They're in the mix, and and I think the rugby uh, sevens in terms of the the men's um, um, are also in the mix. So that that transforms the team if if those guys qualify. Um, so look, it, can, it could be a hundred or more depending on what happens there. We um, and also then the the size of the entourage, the size of the amount of people we bring. Um, we will bring as many as we can to support. We're looking at the moment as to how many we can sit outside the village as well so we can bring more support staff in and out of the village and see if we can get day passes and all that kind of stuff. Accreditation is always an issue. You get more accreditation if your numbers are higher. So okay. again, until we know how many people we qualify, it's hard for us to know what our accreditations are going to be. So what's the difference if, let's say, it's around, you know, it's been in or around 80 in, in previous Olympics. What's the difference between that kind of number and 100 plus uh, if some of the teams qualify? In, in financial terms, what, what would the difference be? The difference is not so much at the Games itself because the International Olympic Committee support us in, in sending teams to the Games and they cover everything at, actually at the Games in terms of transport, in terms of food, in terms of everything once you're at the Games. Mm. So for us, the, 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 the high cost, and um, we're talking to Sport Ireland about that uh, currently, is around the training camps, is getting people to the Games, people from the Games, is, is providing the supports at the Games, getting the, re- the relevant sports science and medicine, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I also then helping people... The men's hockey team, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the men's hockey team had to uh, do some funding themselves, didn't they, last time? Um, to prepare for the last Olympics and that was the first time in donkey's years that we'd qualified a team for the Olympics. Yeah, you see the the, the funding that goes to um, sports in terms of their, their day-to-day fun, um, high performance operations is through Sport Ireland. Um, so they, they, they just, they determine that level of investment and 
like for 10 years, there would have been no increase in Irish sport in terms of funding as, you know, with obviously facing a lot of the same challenges the rest of the country were facing in that regard. So last year was, or last year, this year, last year was the first year there's been any increase in funding whatsoever at all, which we're obviously delighted about. And the fact that there was a... for two years as well, which is the first time too. Which... Yeah, and the, the fact that there's a national sports strategy now, I think makes a big difference. So a new high performance strategy has also been written, um, which will, I think, change the landscape from 2020 on. And now we have much more alignment across the sports system, which gives our athletes the best opportunity. So yeah, that has been a challenge and the the Olympic Federation as it's now called the Olympic Council at the time um, probably wasn't hugely involved around the journey until people started getting to the qualification process what we're doing now is trying to be much more involved in the journey so our, our we've appointed our first chef to mission on a professional basis so prior to this the chef to mission always came from the board and was always a voluntary role so we're the it will not be a board member it isn't a board member for 2020 and and we don't expect it to be going forward and it's a professional paid role we've also brought in a deputy chef to mission who's gavin noble trisha heberley is our chef to mission gavin noble is the deputy chef both of them are, are olympians in their own right so they have very good experience around that um and we've doubled the olympic federation staff in the last year um because we feel that you know we've just under resources and organization the average size of Olympic um, National Olympic Committee in Europe is 16 staff we, we've, on, we've only had four we're now at eight okay. and some of those are contractors so we're so still on the way up what's, what's the financial bill if you like for the Olympic Federation and, and where does that money come from how do you generate it well there's a, there's a mixture as I said so it depends on what how much you want to be part of it all so for us we wanted to try and contribute to the federations um, on the way so uh, we announced a quarter, quarter of a million of funding uh, in the last two weeks going out to to various federations um, you know to support their journey um, some of them to support their journey directly to 2020 and some of them to support potential post 2020 and this is the second year in a row we've done that and we've done it transparently and through a process and uh, it hasn't been at the board table because a lot of the board members are conflicted because they come from national federations so it's been done by a high performance expert a group including uh, Sport Ireland as well so that's that's something that we're actually helping on the journey then as I said our, our, our chef to mission has been involved in working with the performance directors since she started um, and in, in terms of what do they need what, what do they want to do for their camps what's involved we have a new partnership with, sport, with the Sport Ireland Institute and that's been a big piece everybody probably thought that was in place so that's ensuring that there's a continuity of care for athletes and that's so and that's a big piece of this so when so people know in advance who they're going to going to be working with at the games who they're going to see in terms of support um, because again we are going to be challenged around around the the numbers i mean when you when new <coughs> olympic sports come onto the program old olympic sports fall off the program it's the way it works the numbers are a huge challenge within the within the system if you go to a world championships in your sport you can generally bring as many as as, as, as large an entourage as you, as you like so you know, the numbers for the yeah. So, but it's getting that understanding out to people and having people understanding how the how the accreditation works and what's involved and who's likely to go. So, I think discussions have started happening a lot earlier this year. Um, started also understanding the needs of sport is different. What happened as well pre uh, for twenty sixteen was if if you were a sport that was going into the holding camp, which was funded by Sport Ireland primarily and then supported by the Olympic uh, Council, uh, you got supported. But if you weren't one of those, you didn't. So that's not what we want to happen this time around because there'll be sports like sailing okay. and rowing and stuff who won't be part mm. of the main holding camp. And on, on the, the, the revenue for the Olympic kind of federation here, do you think there's too much reliance on, on the money that comes from sport during the Olympic movement? Like, is there a need to generate a third stream, do you think, of, of revenue? And how, is that a challenge, do you think, for the Olympic movement there? No, I mean, I, that's part of our strategy. Our, actual, our strategy going to 2024 says that we want to be independent of state funding by then. Now it's ambitious, but that is our view. Our view is we should be putting in, not taking out. 
um, and we have the power of the rings. And whilst there are challenges around the Olympic movement that it sounds it faces is still the power of the rings absolutely massive. I mean, you've probably heard that the, I think at the moment for Tokyo, um, they're looking at approximately three billion in, in sponsorship going in. So, you know, this is what you're talking about. So we believe we should be putting into the system as opposed to taking out. Um, we've obviously had a couple sponsorship, of years where we're... Sponsorship and... Sponsorship and fundraising. Yeah. Philanthropy, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I mean... This, t- this time around, we probably have the most sponsors already that the Olympic movement has ever had. Um, we have one title sponsor, two partners and a, and a kid sponsor. So, you know, they're only going to 2020. And the challenge, well, I suppose the potential is that ideally this is not, it's not just once every four years the Olympic, Olympic Games roll around either. Like we want a relationship with the organisation throughout. But there is a Winter Olympics mm. and RTE showed highlights of it this year and you know there was over 100,000 people were watching it with five athletes um, they did you know they did really well so there's never been a winter sports strategy before so we're writing a winter sports strategy now there's a, there's eight or nine events that take place in the four years from youth to like junior youth and and at the senior level so there's a lot more involved in it than, than maybe people think yeah there's probably a bit of confusion as well into where does athletics Ireland start and stop and where does the Olympic movement start and stop in terms of and sport Ireland and everybody else but just um, quickly on, on a couple of things one is um recent sponsorship deals and the two organisations you're involved in obviously we saw Tesco big deal for for um, Swim Ireland and Circle K and Indeed I think have come into the Olympic movement amongst amongst others I think Adidas as well and F- FBD is and the FBD, title sponsor sorry apologies yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's been a number of kind of big announcements um, in your view is this a, a sign of the tide turning in terms of commercial money coming back into I say the Olympic movement for starters but then obviously a kind of a turning point I suppose for Swim Ireland to get that kind of investment and and support from a big organisation like Tesco. Yeah, maybe if I take Swim Ireland first. So from our perspective, um, I think there's a recognition uh, that as sports professionalising, there's a better understanding that sponsorship is a partnership and it's not just money handed over, um, you know, that there there needs to be mutual benefit. So from our perspective, we would have spent, you know, a couple of years figuring out, first of all, getting our house in order and getting ourselves fit for purpose so that we were in a position then to to partner with someone and to be able to stand over what we had as as an organisation and what we were doing. Um, and we 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 also looked at our brand and what we were about, and uh, you know, so we're from our perspective, we have you know lots of different disciplines: water polo, swimming, outdoors, indoors. So what's our family? So our family is about me and the water. So everybody has a connection with the water. So everybody within our family, whether you're you know your child, whether you're a high performance athlete, whether you're outdoor swimmer, indoor swimmer, whatever you are, we all have a connection with the water. So um, we've also we also as part of our new strategy. Um, set up a participation department um, so we wanted to, to to reach out to the wider population not necessarily just members of clubs and to be fair our organisation were very open to that which is not always the case so I think we were just in a better place we were we were then ready to, to go out to market so to speak um, we had thought about it beforehand um, and I think when you get out to market and you get speaking with people you, you really only have one or two opportunities you need to make the most of it so we were absolutely delighted when Tesco were and they were brave in our view to come on board they haven't done a, um, a sports sponsorship for quite some time they're heavily involved in in this country um, in, in terms of the amount of employees they have, mm, the amount of stores it's, it's they great, have. It's a great deal, yeah. Yeah, so... And on the Olympic side, the four people that we mentioned... Yeah, so um, FBD came on first and again, that was brave from our perspective. Um, we were delighted to have them come on board considering everything we've been through as an organisation. But they're all about community. They're the only indigenous Irish um, insurance company. So from for them, the fact that the Olympic movement is, you know, is men and women, is kind of younger and older, is across lots of different sports, is people from the, from rural and urban. You know, it's... it's, it's um, all different parts of, I suppose, representing Ireland now and as uh, and, and current Ireland, modern Ireland, because uh, it's our young people. And I think that that appealed to them hugely. So they came on board and then indeed as and um, Circle K have come on as partners recently as well. So for us, 
with Swim Ireland and Tesco and with these guys, a big part of it is is, is the activation, you know, is, is what they're going to do to get the message out and spread the good word around yeah. sport and what they do to the public. Uh, just one, yeah. one more question on that. It's just a, an aside it's quickly in, on minority sports and the challenge in terms of attracting sponsorship. So if you take in this market, th- three big sports, soccer, GA, rugby, attract 60% plus more of the sponsorship revenue in this market. Is it still a challenge for minority sports to attract I, I think investment. it is a challenge because I, I think the challenge is and look marketing isn't my area of expertise but as a CEO you tend to be around a lot of different things but I think I think sponsors uh, need to be brave you know need to look at doing something a bit different um, and associate themselves with something somebody different and I think a lot of organisations now are in a position where they where they can work with them and they can partner with them and they can actually make things come to life um, and you know they're like the national sports policy has prioritised walking swimming and running Um you know, and cycling for a reason on the basis that they're the sports that through the life cycle are the ones that most people are participating in. So if you're looking to reach the wide population, um, they're the sports that are is, that is, are doing is, so. Is it hard to own the participative element that is sometimes, do you think, as in running is so disparate, you know, and people do it for fun and leisure? I think if you're going to activate, not necessarily because then you, you know, first of all, the governing body has the expertise around it, so can offer sure. insight and, and tips and all those kind of things and information to people who want to get involved in, in the various sports. And then, you know, I think I think the sponsors w- can get involved in campaigns, which will encourage people and get out the messages. And that Tesco will be doing that with us. They're going to look at a back to school, back to swimming. They will encourage our people to get involved in the swim for a mile. They will look to support the Olympic the, the Olympic swimmers as well around, you know, a campaign around that and, a, and hopefully a national swimming day. So their brief with us is very much around all of the organisation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Rio um, because it's it's kind of hanging around, uh, if you like. Uh, from four years ago, there was the the arrest of Pat Hickey, um, the scandals around ticketing and, and so forth. Um, I'm not sure if any of those issues are really ever going to be resolved in the fullness of time. Maybe they will, but uh, possibly not. Um, but it must have made life very difficult for um, the Olympic movement in Ireland over the last few years. It must have made it difficult to attract, attract sponsors. So there's been a whole change uh, process within the Olympic movement. You've got a, a new name and newly constituted board and so forth. How, how difficult has it been to move on from what happened in Rio? Yeah, it's not an easy one to answer. Um, and I haven't slept for a long time either, which probably makes some of it seem a bit of a blur. Um, Look, the the first six months after the event were were really the organisation was an absolute total crisis. And as a board director, I would have had my resignation letter in my pocket for 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 quite some time. And it was a very challenging time because when you're on a board, you have to uh, there is a thing called collective responsibility, which is you have to be responsible for the decisions that board makes. And if you're not happy with the decisions the board makes, then you need to step off the board if you're not prepared to support them. So so it was very challenging when, you know, particularly if you're on a board and you don't agree with some of the decisions that are made. Having said that, once you step off, you have no voice. You're not part of the decision making any longer. So um, so that, on a personal level, that was that was quite so a challenge. you in 2014, right? 15. 15, okay. And the, the, the Olympics were in, in 16. Sorry, um, 2014, you're right, yeah. 14, okay. So uh, we'll say two Less years, two years uh, yeah. in advance of the Olympics. I mean... Did you see things as a board member then before the Pat Hickey uh, arrest and everything blew up? Did you see things that you weren't happy about? I think there's no border organisation that is perfect. So, um, you know, there, there were various things that, that would have been raised. There was quite a few new board members who came on at the same time as I did. Um, there was a change at that time for the first time, probably a long time, which I think like, was a positive thing for for 
for the board. So it would have been the first time, for example, that not all of the board would have gone to Rio. And that would have been a decision by the board because it was felt that it was just too much money to send board members to Rio with not necessarily all of them having a role. So it had been decided that only the officers would go. There'd be, there's five officers within the movement. So that would have been a very big decision. That wouldn't. That's the first time that kind of decision has ever been made within the movement. That was made when I was on the board. Um, there were regular board meetings. There were there were papers. Um, we would have raised the fact that we would have felt the financial information wasn't coming out soon enough. That needed to come out closer. You know, rather than getting on the day or the day before, it needed to be sent out more in advance. That was taken on board by the, the treasurer. So you know, definitely, there's all. You know, there would have been things that we felt. Um, need to be improved upon as well. There would have been, you know, talk around kind of the type of debrief you might have afterwards and therefore where the organisation is going because, um, you know, um, I think because the organisation, the Olympic movement is there for so long, it's seen as there's just one way of doing things and there was, you know, as I think every organisation needs to look at a strategy going Mm. forward. So there would have been that kind of thing would have been, um, you know, there would have been some discussions around that. So, you know, I think there was a sense generally that there's some things that need to be changed and some things that need to be improved. In terms of some of the the, the stuff that came out post-games, um, you know, so for example, the the appointment of the authorised ticket reseller would have been done before my time on the board. So I wouldn't have been, been involved in that. So we would have been looking at what happened around that post the games. Right. What's the cost of the organisation being of the whole, the issues around the, the Pat Hickey arrest and everything that arose subsequently? Yeah, probably at this stage, close to 1.5 million. So it's completely ripe, wiped the reserves of the organisation. Right. And are you done with that now or is there going to be a, an ongoing residual cost? At the moment, um, while the, uh, the, the situation is ongoing in Brazil, we're not fully done. No. And what that looks like, we, we have... We are still unsure. So there's our our um, auditors have put what they called an emphasis on ma- um, emphasis mm. of matter in our financial mm. statements, which we've been open about to our membership and everybody else, which brings that fact out that there's you know we're, we're still there's still that matter to be con- to be to be looked at what that might mean. At this stage, th- though, I mean we you know our legal fees are reduced hugely in terms of what we're paying out. Um, we're still in discussions with our insurers about a few things. Um, we've received approximately 400,000, 450,000 maybe from our insurers to support some of the costs. So the cost is higher than 1.5 million, but that's the net cost. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think we are on the way forward. Um, you know, we have looked at the potential outcomes um, and tried to look at what that might mean financially as well as best possible we can as an organisation. I won't go into the detail of that because that's, that's at board level. Um and, uh, and does Pat Hickey have any involvement still with the Olympic movement in Ireland? Because he was invited to European Games, which are ongoing at the minute. And I think he's been attending those um, very same European Games. Yeah, he's had no involvement in Ireland. He was sent the, the papers for the annual general meeting of our organisation, which we understand legally we were required to do. Um, but as he self-suspended, he wouldn't be attending anything to do with you know the organisation. Um in terms of the EOC um, invite, that came from them. It wasn't anything to do with us. A little bit surprised at the time. Our understanding would have been that while the while he was in front of the while the ISC ethics um, file is still opened and that's on you know that's underway that that nothing would have happened. He wouldn't have had any involvement until that was um, finalised. Having said that, we've been you know advised that it's all very standard inviting all presidents and that his role over there is very you know is, he has no real function or role there. He's there uh, invited, but he's not involved in. Um, you know, he, he wasn't at the General Assembly that we were at. He wasn't at the opening ceremony. I'm not okay. sure he'd be at the closing ceremony. He hasn't been around our team. And is John Delaney involved? Because he was a he's a former vice president of the Olympic Council. He resigned the during the first couple of months post Rio. So he's no involvement. No involvement. Either, no. right? No. And just speaking, uh, you know, for yourself, because you were a board member before and you've survived after. I mean, there's 
you know, calls for all of the FAI boards to be cleared out and a completely new board to be put in place. Um, so why was it right for some board members to stay on uh, with the OCI post all of that, whereas perhaps it might not be uh, with the FAI? Why was, it, why, why was it right, for example, for you to stay on and subsequently become president of the Olympic Federation, given that you had been on the board uh, previously? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not close enough to the FAI situation to, to, to comment on that in detail. In terms of the Olympic Federation, um, those of us who who have who were re-elected um, were only on the board for a couple of years, like I think like two, two and a half years, whatever it was. So uh, that would be, you know, any normal term of office would be, you know, I, I would think it's a maximum of eight, really. So I'm now subject to a term of office and my two years or two and a half years would be taken into account around that. Um, so if I want to go forward for 2020, you know, at our next AGM when for the for the Olympic Federation, that will be the last term of office. If I go forward and I'm successful as president, I won't. I'll have to step off then after that term of office. Um, so you know, for, so previous service has been taken into account, which I think is important. Um, also, then I um, for us, a lot of the changes that came around Deloitte were implemented by the new board, um, and I, you know there is. If you want to make cultural change, it has to come from within to a large extent. People have to to um, to want to make the organisational changes. And, um, you know, there was, I suppose, I feel there was a group within Irish sport who made a decision to put themselves forward for election and to try and change things within the within the Olympic Federation and then were voted in by, by the relevant um, national governing bodies and the members of the Olympic Federation. So... There was sport saying we need to change something about our about Irish Olympic sport, and that is that is what's that in my view is why the the power of the implementation has been fast and it's been it's it's been thorough, and I think that's why you've had sponsors and others believing in it. Our relationship with the government is very positive. Relationship with Sport Ireland is very positive. We are independent, but the relationship is very positive. The Olympic Federation, the new Olympic Federation, uh, thankfully has uh, has moved on from uh, the scandal of Rio, and uh, hopefully we will get a hundred plus uh, in in that team. And um, for Ireland at the games uh, next year, how many medals might we bring home? Uh, the Olympic Federation uh, made a deliberate decision as part of our consultation with our national federations are under strategy not to reference a medal target, and it was a deliberate decision. It was a discussion? Uh, why discussion? So the the it's okay. We're not going to hold. So you. the plan was. Now let me finish out. The plan was. Uh, well, what what the strategy says is that we want to do better every time round. So that's not just better on medals. It's also uh, have we improved our final number of finalists? Have we improved our number of semi finalists? Have we improved maybe sports who have gone there before? So it's all about performance. So on that basis, look, we should really, uh, as time goes on, whether it's twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty four. I mean, if you're looking at you know the Denmarks and the New Zealands <coughs> who are always compared about, I mean, they've got medal counts in the teens, you know. So I, I where we are for twenty twenty really is probably Peter Peter Gerard, our CEO, and um, Sport Ireland are probably talking about the medal count more so than also yeah. at a board level. But you'd want to be, you know, we would want to be moving towards the six to ten as we go forward to, yeah. toward twenty twenty four. That's realistically where we should be going as an organisation and as as a nation. Great. Okay, Sarah Keane, thank you for joining us. Um, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Sarah of the Olympic Federation. Uh, research was by Dan O'Neill of Dineo. Declan Conroy produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. You can follow the latest business news each day from the Irish Times on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock <coughs> and I'm Mick O'Keefe. Until next time, take care. <laughs>